Welcome to the Healthy Insider Podcast, where we help supplement and functional food brands create better products. Today's host is Todd Runstead, Senior Editor. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another issue of the Toddcast. That's right, the Toddcast. We're uh, podcasting all kinds of people in the natural products industry all along the supply chain. We like to talk to ingredient suppliers. We like to talk to brands and producers and thought leaders and just weirdos and freaks and booger-eating morons. We don't have any of those here today, but we do have some luminaries in the hemp space, which I am uh, very happy to bring you. And uh, as a prelude, one of these principles of uh, the, the lovely, glorious hip by Kentucky standards, Josh Hendricks, hemp industry extraordinaire, he is with us. And he will also be with us, ladies and gentlemen, at the Hemp Collective Virtual Summit. That's going on Wednesday, December 9th, coming right up from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Rocky Mountain High time. Um, look to newhope.com or naturalproductsinsider.com for how to register for this free and totally bodacious event coming right up. That's right. I used the word bodacious. I also used the word free because, you know, the Internet's still free. So uh, we've got with us today, as I mentioned, Josh, Josh Hendricks, who is a senior advisor for this really interesting company that we're really going to dig into today, Driftless Extracts. We also have Simon Legal, who is the co-founder of Driftless, and uh, they are based in Wisconsin. And um, I really want to kind of dig into a lot of sourcing challenges. And, uh, you know, uh, Simon with Driftless, they are both a, uh, a wholesaler, they're a producer, a hemp grower, and they're also vertical, so they have their own brands. And I want to start by checking in on this number because Josh told it to me last week, and I thought that boy might be as high as a Georgia pine. So I'm going to validate this. Simon, well, first, how the hell are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate you guys uh, having us on. Cool. That's great. So Josh told me that you've got 100,000 acres of hemp growing in Wisconsin. Really? Uh, that was over the last in in the 2019 production year. Yes, there was there was 100,000 acres that were grown across across the state. Now, that I, let me just pick my job off the floor for a minute. <laughs> okay, there it's it's back engaged again. 100,000 acres. That is somewhere between a ton and a load. And so, so for people who don't understand the concept of acres. I did a little math, and I might not be right here because I work better with letters than numbers. But is that like, is that like a mile wide and fifteen miles deep? Ten miles wide, fifteen miles deep. I mean, that's a lot. Um, I'm not going to give you the exact parameters without knowing for sure. Um, I'm I'm going to estimate that it's it's um, much closer to the ten mile number than the than the one mile number. And I want to make yeah. a I want to make a something very clear that there's a there's a big difference between a grown or registered as a grown hemp acre and a harvested completed crop acre those are two very different things and that's because of uh mother nature and all that stuff you know here in colorado we have hail um and you know you might have all kinds of things maybe you'll only uh harvest half of what you planted yeah i would uh, hemp is hemp is obviously brand new to the rotation for agriculture and and i would say that that mother nature certainly plays a hand in 
the amount of successful cultivations that we see. Um, but professionalism in the industry is is really the the large driver of a um, a complete competitive crop. There's there's a lot of individuals that that participated in the space without um, doing a lot of due diligence. And in Wisconsin, you know, is just simply behind um, the curve that we saw west in in states like Colorado and Oregon and Washington, where you know you had big boom production years in in 2013 and 2014 and 2015 out there. We had a similar thing happen here in 2019, where lots of people thought um, the green rush was on and and everyone was going to make massive um, exponential wealth gains. And, and unfortunately, um, the vast majority of growers that participated in the space um, were unqualified to do so and, and thus did not have a, a competitive crop to bring to market. Yeah, and so you'll have everything from the yield ain't what you thought it might be, and then just the quality of it. It, it might not turn out like you planned. I guess it doesn't exactly grow like a weed. Yeah, I mean, it uh, depends on what what cultivar you're you're producing. So, fiber and grain crops grow pretty well in this climate. Uh, we have to be really careful with grain crops. Uh, the farther we go into October, the wetter it gets, and the more likelihood that we end up with um, a contamination like white mold on the flower that'll that'll thus, you know, prohibit the crop from entering any type of, of food ingredient. Um, those, those grow well. Germination is sometimes a problem if not planted at the correct depth or if we don't get enough water on the crop. Um, but the, the cultivation that we see for, for cannabinoids is, is vastly different, um, grown at populations that, that are significantly lower. Just, just to give you an example, we might have, you know, anywhere from one to one and a half million seeds per acre in a typical fiber application where we only have 2000 seeds per acre in a, in a cannabis or a, um, a hemp CBD cultivation path. And, and those are grown much different, like much larger Christmas tree type plants as opposed to tall, thin stalks. Um, there's just a lot, of, a lot of variability in cultivation and there's a lot of ways that you can do it. There's only really a few ways to do it really professional with 21st century agriculture to really drive down um, your risk and, and thus push up yield and, and really, you know, ultimately it's about getting the lower cost production acre to make the crop profitable. Yeah. And I had heard that one way that you could, uh, make hemp as a real viable commodity crop for the 21st century in America is by having a multi-use. So something that would deliver more than just either grain or fiber or cannabinoids, Sounds like you've got another uh, tiger by the tail there, which is to just plant a hundred thousand freaking acres of it. So, uh, what, what do you are you getting? Are you just growing strictly for cannabinoids at this point? Yeah, we we actually don't grow a hundred thousand acres internally. That was the the number in the state grown across the state in 2019. Um, when when we grow, we actually we've done it multiple different methodologies. So we've grown um, fiber grain crosses and we've grown strictly for cannabinoids. We've done both applications in two completely different, um, completely different realms. They actually take different equipment to, to put them in, put the crop in and, and to harvest the crop. Ultimately, long-term, you know, we're much more focused on sustainable manufacturing and driving materials um, to be the, the ultimate goal for Wisconsin because our supply chain is set up really well for, for end product consumers and in, in things like paper and packaging and, um, and textiles compared to traditional cannabinoid markets, you know, out West, 
in in Colorado and Oregon, they have a, a significant advantage. They they got to participate in the market much sooner than Wisconsin did. We were four years behind. Um, we the first production year was really 2018, and and um, we ultimately think that Wisconsin plays long term in the sustainable manufacturing market much much better than it does in the cannabinoid market. However, we're we're to market in the cannabinoid market in a, in a very disruptive manner. Um, with a certified organic crop, and and we think that, that that market has legs too. It just likely in 25 years will be nowhere near the size of the hemp fiber marketplace. That's pretty wild. I am very excited about this conversation. I think we're going to dig in deep, but Josh, I don't want to leave you out of the picture first uh, yet. And so, Josh, let me just ask you this introductory question because you've been around the block. You've been from field to field. You've seen a lot of hemp being grown out there, why did you throw in with Driftless? What do you see they're doing that maybe you don't see everywhere, maybe you don't see anywhere? Yeah, well, I think um, I think Simon used my, my favorite word there, disruptive. And I think what they're doing and the way they're doing it is going to be disruptive because they're new. Um, you know, Simon pointed out that other folks have been in the cannabinoid market a little bit longer and have an advantage there. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of stumbles and falls and things along the way there that the guys at Triplis don't haven't had yet and, and potentially won't have because they can learn from those other companies' lessons. And so uh, what I saw in Driftless was kind of working from working their way backwards. So they looked at it as the cannabinoid market's there. We're very sophisticated agriculturally, uh, very sophisticated mechanically. Uh, very sophisticated financially, even, uh, and Simon can speak more to that. But they can they they jumped in and could quickly hone that cannabinoid market, which will create revenue and really open the doors for them to create a bigger fiber market. And I think that's what what intrigued you when we talked last week was, you know, when we're able to take a cannabinoid product and service the big guys, service the brands in house that Driftless is going to have and, and already has. Um, but also take that money and build a bigger agricultural scheme. Generally, the cogs are going to go down across the board. And so the name of the game in the fiber market is going to be efficiency. These guys had it in spades. Um, you know, it was an easy transition for me because what I've been preaching for the past, you know, six years is efficiency, right? And disruption. And I think they get both sides of that coin very well. And I think our, uh, our end goals lined up perfectly. That's cool. So I, um, you know, I, I don't want this to be just a little commercial for Driftless. Uh, we, we get the quality uh, proposition here. So what, what I'd really like to do is to dig in a little into just your, uh, I'm inventing a new phrase here, your commodity wisdom. That's right, commodity wisdom. I just made it up. Uh, so, uh, you know, Josh, if you're, if you're out there and you're a brand and you're not growing your own, how do you determine what's an effective product or what's a reputable company you know that there's a lot out there and people are like yeah yeah i want to start a brand i'm into it uh, my sister's a designer and my buddy can sell ice cubes to eskimos and we're all in okay now we need to find something how do you find your way to a company like driftless or how how do you say ah, i don't think these are the guys what are some of the things that you, that you think about? You know, like how, how could you help out your average, um, you know, your average startup guy who wants to drive the hemp industry forward? 
Well, there's just a lot of moving parts there, right? I think um, you only know what you know. And I think knowing that uh, full traceability is something that's hopefully been educated and marketed enough to know that if you're not able to trace your product back, then you're probably not going to be in the game. I mean, if you're just trying to go direct to consumer and you have some flashy marketing and as long as there's some CBD in there and it meets specs, then, you know, there's, there's plenty of isolate on the market. It'll just be a game of pricing at that point. But when you're talking about knowing who your consumer is, wanting to do right, wanting to create quality products, traceability is the first thing that should be the standard box to check. You know, but before you move on to other things, I, I want to dig into traceability. No, no, no I was going to go that... down that. I was going to say, well, then go down, down that rabbit hole. <laughs> going down that rabbit go? hole, I mean, how far back can you trace it, right? Where did the CBD come from? Where, where did the hemp extract come from? Where was the hemp grown? Uh, you know, there's companies out there still to this day using European hemp, a very low uh, strength, I would call it, um, and using, you know, machines here in the U.S. to ramp it up and create products. And that's all fine and dandy, but there's better quality stuff on the market. That's just a fact. And so being able to trace it back as far as possible should be your number one goal. You can trace it back to the field. Uh, that would be ideal. If you can trace it back to the when it came out of an extraction machine, that's going to be your bare minimum as far as I'm concerned. Um, in terms of and other standards, just hold on, hold on. I, I, I want to stick down this uh, rabbit hole. And I think when you said different standards, you're hopping into a different rabbit hole. So when when you're like, OK, yep, I see it. It goes all the way back to the to the farm. And yep, I know the farmer and he's got these seeds and he says they're they're good. So you're probably going to ask for a certificate of analysis to and then to validate it. And so then you have a piece of paper that says, yep, it's good. And I'm thinking trust but verify. So do you then have to say, yeah, okay, this looks great. Give me a sample and then I have to take it out to a lab and I want to take it to a lab and see if their test results line up with that. I mean, is that like a common practice that you would do? Well, so once you're sourcing and you know, you're sourcing for a specific brand that you're working for, you're, you own, then you should do independent verification on that. I mean, you can't just trust that a company sends you a C of A you would usually get a sample. Some people do in-house testing, depending on how big your company is, but you can always send that off to a lab, the reputable lab that you work with as well. So kind of double-checking, I guess, is, what you, is, is where you would go with that. Um, but, but just because they're, uh, their, their testing says what, you know, says what it says, it doesn't have pesticides, herbicides, all that stuff, what about the facility? Is it GMP? Is, you know, is the facility kosher is it all these other certifications you know, how many boxes can you check i think is the ultimate goal the ultimate goal of your question there how do i go about doing that well you try to find the person that checks the most boxes right and i think simon could probably talk more in, in depth about the stuff that dribbles is doing to kind of get ahead of that and set the standard when it comes to that but similar Perfect. to the u.s hemp authority and what they're doing um, you know, you always want to try to verify and certify things to the utmost degree because that's how you're going to separate something in an industry where there's 3,000 brands and a million different products. Right. Hey, all right. So it's a perfect lead in back to you, Simon. Uh, uh, what were you thinking when you started? I imagine you didn't, you weren't just born into farming to get into hemp. Maybe you were farming something else and why'd you get into it? And what makes hemp different 
and what have you done to uh, to sort of certify or validate your quality proposition? When you talk about your story there. It comes from the founders and the backgrounds that we have. We're a pretty diverse group. There are six founders of Driftless. We have backgrounds in software engineering and structural engineering, finance, venture capital, um, and then two certified agronomists um, on staff. One of them was a, you know, had a master's in soils from the University of Wisconsin, ran the University Soil Lab for six years. So we're we're professionals in lots of different spaces. And our group came together um, when we realized there was an opportunity and it, it, it's not a it's not a five year opportunity in hemp. It, it's much longer than that. And it, it's because of things we see changing across the globe that likely will need to change relatively rapidly in the 21st century to 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 be able to make our production and our supply chain sustainable long term for for future generations. And hemp is a hemp is a great plant to achieve some of those sustainability requirements. We came forward um, a bit selfishly in the Wisconsin market. Um, full, five out of the six founders have backgrounds um, in their in their childhood in agriculture. And so we understand agriculture, but we also understand um, some more sophisticated things like Josh was talking about in terms of production, software, and finance, where we really felt there was an opportunity to, to make Wisconsin the, the Midwest epicenter for, glo- for hemp production. And um, selfishly, Wisconsin, it's near and dear to our heart. Currently, um, 65% of all farm bankruptcies in the ninth region for the Federal Reserve, which you know takes the the states from Montana over to Michigan across the the northern border with with Canada, that district, 65% of farm bankruptcies are in Wisconsin, and and that's due to the dairy industry really really struggling over the past four years, and so we ultimately want to to allow hemp to be not a a small time production, you know think very unique vegetable crop, but more importantly, we want it to be a traditional row crop and, and compete with corn, soybeans, alfalfa um, for rotation spots with big professional growers. And, and the cannabinoid market is nowhere near large enough to dictate that. We need large production in manufacturing um, in order to, to bring those crops forward. And, and we're working on a number of initiatives in to kind of bring that market forward faster, you know, I mentioned earlier that that we're at, we were at a disadvantage that Wisconsin legislated relatively late when it came to to the cannabinoid market. However, we're right we're we're right there with the other states in terms of um, paper and packaging and, and textile production. That market hasn't rapidly um, seen traction like the cannabinoid market has over the past six years. We, we want to participate in both realms. We recognized really early that the cannabinoid market was a place that you could create a cash flow business relatively quickly and then lever those funds into research and development. I'll, I can talk about some of those things we're working on here, but I do want to answer your question fully, and, and that's transparency and traceability. In order to bring a cash flow market company forward, we ultimately decided we needed to have a commodity-based mindset. Um, the blueprint is is there. It, it isn't rocket science. The food industry, the supplement industry, um, already provide frameworks for requirements. Things like Josh mentioned, like certified GMP, full traceability, um, batch lot numbering systems where you can trace the day a plant was planted, where it was planted, the GPS coordinates of when it was harvested, when it landed at our facility. 
what bag tag it was issued, when it got put in cold storage, when that bag tag got pulled, when it got entered into extraction, when it got entered into distillation, when it got entered into remediation, when it got bottled, when it got delivered at the fulfillment center, and then when it ultimately landed at the customer's hands. You should be able to provide transparency all the way through. Those those systems are the level that all other, other industries have to provide transparency for. And if you want cannabinoids to be a legitimate market, you obviously have to participate at the same level of transparency and traceability. And in any group that's that's essentially trying to to either not adhere to those standards or to somehow um, provide a different framework is, is likely not going to be successful long term. Um, we know that if if we all get what we want and the FDA is required to regulate the cannabinoid marketplace, the 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 roadmap is already available, and and we're we anticipate that we'll adhere to it in in a relatively really short order because because we understand the the traceability requirements, you know, with certified organic, with CGMP, so on and so forth to to meet those industry standards um, when we get regulation from the FDA. Now, is that necessarily a blockchain sort of thing? You, you know, just no. Really, it, you know, it's I mean, how how was the food industry? completely traceable and transparent in 1985 or in 1990 before blockchain was was entered blockchain is a really efficient tool to make traceability seamless and and to allow the customer to really pull the data in short order it's an efficient tool but but it doesn't necessarily need to be um traceability and transparency have been around for a while that's cool. So when I hear you talk about, uh, you know, fiber and grain, the non-cannabinoid uh, part of it, that sounds to me like one of the challenges that you would have is is um, processing infrastructure. Uh, is, is that part of your kind of, you know, greater Wisconsin game plan is to get some uh, get some facilities, you know, up and running so that they can actually work with the biomass and, and turn it? into something uh, you know more economically viable down the value chain? Yes, um, that is our ultimate goal is to, to really provide um, a market resource for fiber and grain crops here in Wisconsin. And, and grain is a little trickier due to the mold, the mold presence, but fiber for sure, um, long-term we believe has a, a really significant opportunity uh, just because of the paper industry here in Wisconsin. Um, very large mills um, all across the state in everything from wet pulp manufacturing, um, recycled brown paper plastic, or recycled recycled brown paper packaging, um, to to brand new virgin white paper. There, there's lots of opportunity in that space and in textiles um, to to create a market selfishly again for our agriculture um, partners. Now, it isn't a market that we can create in 12 months it's a market we can create over the next five or ten years um but it but it is really intriguing because it hits a lot of the the economic growth type opportunities that different municipalities and and different levels of government are really searching for and that's rural development you you cannot create in a, a hemp fiber production plant in downtown milwaukee the logistics of it don't work. So you need to, you actually need to create that infrastructure in rural communities where the transit time from hemp fiber is relatively close, that that cuts the cost of production. And that allows you to 
enter and, and participate and compete in markets really, really quickly with traditional fiber sources like, you know, timber and canaf and flax and 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 those realms. If if you create the the commodity based approach where you can compete on price with a different product that is much more renewable, it's a really compelling story to tell your end consumer. And can you use some of these same facilities like wood pulp or flax or whatever, or do you have to buy it and repurpose it and make it kind of an exclusively hemp situation? So the initial the initial conditioning for the hemp plant specifically will be have to be new related infrastructure, but the materials that come out of the first stage of that plant can certainly integrate into the supply chain here. So powderized um, core material or, um, you know, shredded bass for wet pulp manufacturing, those are congruent products. Um, those raw materials will likely fit almost immediately. We're working on a handful of those already um, with partners, but, you know, partners, if you ask them to, to have a large capital expenditure product, just to, just to be able to take your raw material, it's likely on, it's likely a no, but if you provide them a solution to use a raw material that you provide at a cost competitive price, but we check the sustainability box, you ultimately have a story that, that, that not only fits their supply chain, but that customer can tell for a public, public relations, um, piece as well. Hey, look, look what we're trying to do to create our own sustainable supply chain. When you talk fiber, what are what are some what are some of the the lowest hanging fruit uh, of final finished products that you can compete against using hemp? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this as as complete as I can without you know um, giving you guys the entire playbook. Um, some things that are relatively easy to to compete on. Um, are spools and weaves in textiles. There's lots of different applications for lots of different groups in manufacturing. If you can get to that product, if you can get to that finished product with 100% or even a 50% natural fiber um, blend, that, that's a pretty compelling product. Um, in, in terms of in Wisconsin, um, we have natural markets set up um, for think um, erosion control blankets for DOT type projects that uh, immediately we can create a product that'll that'll land on on roadsides and highways for uh, when we do when we see new construction uh, we we can almost immediately compete with wet pulp uh, manufacturing in the timber space um, powderized core material as an additive into recycled paper is a really interesting concept that we anticipate will add the lifespan to recycled paper, maybe maybe double or, or even two and a half times more turns in the digester. Those are some really easy applications that we can we can go forward on a commoditized basis for volume to, to really get the the core agriculture off the ground and, and get large producers growing it. Once we create a market that competes with with corn and soybeans, you can do that relatively easily. From there, um, pushing much further into research and development. You know, plastics are, are certainly um, something that we, we'd like to participate in. Um, we're working on a couple different projects there and, and I, I can't speak too much about those, but um, th there's a whole array of different uses for the plant that are low hanging fruit, mid tier, and then higher, higher targets that, that are gonna be much longer term. And what sounds really interesting to me about what you just said is it sounds like maybe the coin of the realm, as it were, is not so much to just be like, 
uh, yeah, okay, uh, I have a cotton shirt and now I want to make a hemp shirt. Or I have this, you know, uh, white virgin paper and now I want to make it hemp paper. But the key is to have a blend so that maybe it's a 50-50 cotton hemp shirt or, you know, maybe it's another one of those things where you can just sort of integrate it into processing of other products. So it's not like a, it's not an all or nothing kind of thing. What do you, is, am, am I, am I smoking rope there? Does that no, sound you, real? You're, you're right on. Um, asking industries that have been doing business one way for over a hundred years to flip their supply chain overnight on um, a raw material that that isn't mature yet is is an unlikely um, conversation to have with that that group. But if you ask a group to instead maybe transform two to five percent of their supply chain for raw raw ingredients sourcing and give them a solution to do it, you immediately put acres into production on a smaller scale that is a model pilot that you can then spread that model to to lots of different groups and create big volume acreage production. This change doesn't happen overnight. We're not fools. You know, there's there's not a secret sauce that immediately we're going to create sustainable manufacturing um, in the next, you know, 18 months. But more importantly, in 25 years, we really hope that this plant, it it can be used in multiple facets of manufacturing and, and packaging and, and, and plastics in a much more sustainable way method than petroleum is currently used. And so, I mean, is is the sustainability, is the carbon sequestration, is, is all of those, you know, it's a little more high-minded because all you want to do is try to save human civilization besides just make a buck. And so I guess the question is, can you can you get in there? Can you slip in there in the, at that two to five percent? at a cost competitive rate because i would imagine if you've got an industry that yeah we've just been cruising along using uh you know p- petroleum ba- based products for decades and now you want us to use something else uh yeah okay well uh you, you you better save me a couple pennies here along the way i mean is is that a trick or do you have to then use some other sort of values or mission based um pitches in order to make close that deal it's it's probably number 2 um, but I, I will say this, that we are at a unique point civilization for inflection point. And, and it, we, we come at a point where manufacturing is sophisticated enough to create many of the efficiencies we need. But ultimately, the consumers are starting to decide. I'm going to use electrification in the automobile industry as, as an example. If we go back as recent as 10 years ago, there was very little work being done in electrification of vehicles. One company kind of changed that and required all of the other electric vehicle, all the other um, automobile manufacturers to to really transform the way that they were making automobiles. And now, by 2025, we anticipate all the major automakers will have their own fleet of electric vehicles. It doesn't matter if it's Toyota or Ford or GM or or Volkswagen or Hyundai. They they all have a plan, and and it you know it's dozens of vehicles that are going to come into production. This is yeah, that, that's really exciting, by the way. And and that company also just uh, put a rocket ship up into the internet. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So those those conversations um, in that type of model, we think as long as you can be competitive on price. will allow the, the customer to really decide as long as it's competitive, it doesn't have to beat it on price. It just has to be close. Additionally. 
one other thing I'll bring up is the last 10 months have changed our lives dramatically and supply chains are being rewritten and remapped due to the pandemic. And this is another opportunity for us to bring manufacturing back to this, to this, to the agriculture site, to the agriculture center of production in this country, because supply chains will require domestic production. So they aren't interrupted. And those two things we're, we're just at this natural inflection point where we think larger, larger groups that are in the spaces of packaging and, and production long-term will are, are starting to see that. And it's not all about cost. It's, how do we make sure our business isn't interrupted from all these other risks? And by the way, how can we make sure that we, we take care of the climate and create a sustainable story for our company PR-wise over the next 10 or 15 or 20 years? It's an awesome story there, Simon. And I can't help but notice that uh, we just had a presidential election. I don't know if you've heard. And so one of the guys uh, said that he really wants to put climate front and center of every federal agency that's out there to really to really uh, integrate it, you know, and this is something that doesn't need congressional approval. Um, and it, it just requires a new way of thinking everywhere throughout the government to to, you know, have a climate consideration out there. It seems to me that you being in Wisconsin, which last I heard was a toss up state and uh, fiercely battled, that could be an opportunity for a Biden administration that wants to drive um, climate considerations and also wants to make sure that Wisconsin remains in the blue wall to really get federal support of building rural economies through hemp. What do you think about that? So I... I usually try to stay away from any type of political discussion. So I am going to try to sidestep the question while still answering it. Yes, I believe that um, that there will be likely more funds available for research and development because of the climate crisis that we all face. Um, however, you know, one of the one of the projects that we're working on is with um, an entity who I cannot share, but it it is. An entity, it's a public entity, so it's it's not a private company. And that group cares about sustainment and their supply chain being domestic due to national security and national security only. That is a whole nother source of funding that is available. Um, I think climate matters a lot, but I also think sustainment and domestic manufacturing matter a lot. Again, it 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 kind of. I'm just going to go back to this inflection point that we're on. That that the the 2018 farm bill really is going to provide an opportunity for different plants to be sourced into sustainable manufacturing, and it comes at a point where we have to do something as a civilization. Otherwise, we're not going to have a civilization in in maybe 100 or 200 years. And additionally. Um, there are companies, and we see them all over the marketplace, that care and, and want to put a positive light on their sourcing of materials and how they're seen in the marketplace. And they want to be on one specific side of that equation. And we want to be a partner for them to go out and achieve that level of, of um, 
not only sustainability, but recognition in the marketplace that they're attempting to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. I love that. Hey, hey, Josh, I want you to uh, be part of this conversation. And so the interesting thing that how this conversation, is, I think, is dovetailing back to you is, you know, I, I've known you for a few years now and you've been in the, the hemp CBD game. Now, what Simon's talking about here is a lot of the non-cannabinoid part of it. But you've also spoken a lot about how you want to see combines and big fields and really make this a, a, a commodity crop in the fields and, and, and not the grow houses, you know. And so here, here's your opportunity, Josh. What, what do you think is, is, the, is the whole hemp plant non-cannabinoid opportunity out there? And, and what's your vision for the next, you know, 5, 10 or health, Simon, even throughout 25 years? Uh, it's, it's right in line with Simon. I mean, I think you know, the, the points I've been making for however many years now is this is bigger than CBD. CBD is just the disruption, right? And that's that has allowed us to legalize hemp, which opened up state after state and farm after farm. Unfortunately, uh, most of those farmers jumped into the cannabinoid side of things and produced enough cannabinoids to, you know, supply us for however many years they're saying now. Um, but I think the you know if, if i think i said this on the last time i was on your podcast if the opposite had happened and we had overproduced hemp fiber and it was just sitting around in bales well then we would have a good problem because someone would then have the material they would need to figure out the, the next part which is processing it and turning it into something uh that someone can take and then turn that into something and so i think you know we can't we can't rewrite rewrite history uh we can't go back in time but we can kind of uh, use the cannabinoid industry to solve that problem and and push forward on the fiber side. I think, you know, with the right farmers in Wisconsin and in that, that general area, typically known for good fiber production, um, you know, finding the right supply chain, lining everything up, understanding that it all needs to be regional, very, very tight-knit groups uh, within, you know, close to the facilities because moving it back and forth and across state line, all that stuff um, can become expensive. It's just a bigger picture. So, you know, I, I don't know that I could say it any better than Simon did because I do think about it 5, 10, 20, 25 years from now, especially now with his little son, uh, thinking about his future. And I think, you know, we've gotten, uh, we've had a, a wonderful conversation here about sustainability and how how we can compete in that market, but we have to do it, right? We have to go do it. And how do you go do it? Well, it takes money. And I think a lot of the uh, the money and the, the investment dollars have been spent on the cannabinoid side. Uh, luckily, the guys at Dripless have figured out a way to produce cannabinoids, specifically CBD, but uh, you know, obviously venturing into the others at a very cost-efficient rate to the point where their first brand is going to have a uh, a subscription model where you can get a 3,000 milligram THC remediated broad spectrum peppermint flavored certified USDA certified organic dropper uh, again 3,000 milligrams for 39.99 and you know you do the math on that and you're taking 50 milligrams a day that's a $20 a month uh, health habit as opposed to you know some of these other prices the 3,000 milligram bottles usually in the hundred $20, $150 range, and you, know, you do the same math on that. You're talking about a heck of a lot more per month, 12 months a year, however many years you're going to take CBD. It's, you know, it's mind-boggling. Like I said, you know, I've been 
I think I was on a call earlier this morning where I said I've been taking CBD every day for the past six, seven years, and I love it. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's days when I forget to take it that I notice that I, I'm glad that I have access to it, but I haven't paid for it, and it has to become more efficient. You're seeing a, kind of a dull in the industry, and that has to do with a lot of different factors, but that has to be efficient too. And so you know, being able to capitalize on that market and do it in an efficient way and prove that these guys know what they're doing. It starts on the agricultural side. It works its way up. It gave me the confidence that, Hey, they're going to, um, these are the right guys to, to align with, to try to figure out the other side of this stuff. How do we, you know, infiltrate the supply chains that already exist, whether it's materials or food. And I think, yeah, we're, we're definitely on the right track there. I love it. And I think we're going to end with that. Uh, uh, how to infiltrate supply chains. Oh, I love that idea. Oh, that just makes me purr. Um, hey, uh, Simon Legal, co-founder of Driftless Extracts, and Josh Hendricks, he was a senior advisor. Thanks. And I also want to just uh, uh, let everyone know again, remind you, the Hemp Collective Virtual Summit 2 is going to happen December 9th, and that's from 11 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Eastern and uh, you can tune into newhope.com or naturalproductsinsider.com to figure out how to get in on that, and I invite you all to do so. And again, Josh Simon, tally-ho, boys. See you around the farm. Thank you for listening to a Healthy Insider podcast. We are continually looking to improve your podcast experience and want to hear from you, the industry listener. Please take a moment to take our quick survey and provide your feedback at naturalproductsinsider.com slash podcast survey.